I want to thank you for the opportunity to um, share from God's word and uh, we trust that you've been enjoying the series on Isaiah. I have and I've learnt a lot, I tell you. So it's been really good. But our subject this morning, well, it's something most people think about regularly. Some people dream about it. Some never have enough of it. And for others, it keeps them awake at night. Yes, if you can guess it, I'm talking about wealth. I just wonder how we would feel if uh, the elders came up and tapped any one of us on the shoulder and said, uh, listen, uh, oh gee, they're bright. <laughs> uh, listen, you need to hand over some of your stash for a good cause. Um, I don't think many of us would like that. Uh, it's the most untouchable of all items, isn't it? When uh, somebody tries to uh, want to get into your stash, so to speak. Uh, but um, it's been said here from the pulpit that unless we're willing to hand over our wallets to the Lord, he hasn't got us yet. I don't know if any of you remember that. It was a long time ago. Somebody said it from the pulpit here. But anyway... Let's have a look at chapter 23. Isaiah, we're going to see the frailty of human wealth. Towards the end of the chapter, we'll also see a contrast of how wealth is used. Man stores up wealth, hoards it, and uses it selfishly. God uses wealth to bless his people and distributes it to feed and clothe. The way that God uses wealth compared to the way man uses wealth is like chalk and cheese. In 2008, we saw how the markets reacted when we had the global financial crisis. Companies went bankrupt. Many people lost their livelihood, their homes, etc., Recently, when the World Health Organisation announced that we were entering a global financial crisis, uh, the same thing happened, didn't it? Markets collapsed, companies folded, and once again, people lost their jobs, people lost their homes, etc. But I think these events are going to make it easier for us to understand this chapter from Isaiah, because some of us have been here and have experienced these losses, and we've been affected by them. There is no security in human wealth. Let me say that again. There is no security in human wealth. But at the same time, it's not a chapter to turn us into anti-capitalist warriors. If you'll notice at the end of the chapter, in verse 18... The wealth of Tyre is restored and tends to cast a long-term vision or prophecy right through to Revelation chapter 21, especially verses 6b and verse 24. And I'll just read them out so we can just think about them. uh, Revelation 21, 6b says this, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And Revelation 21, 24, 
the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor onto it. The wealth of Tyre is ultimately to be used for the glory of God. This chapter is going to teach us and will help us to understand that one, wealth is a gift from God. Two, wealth will ultimately be used for the glory of God. And wealth is not necessarily a bad thing. But the warning for us as individuals and as a church positioned here in affluent Western society is that we don't get caught up in wealth and possessions. Now, I think I've mentioned this before, but um, the fastest growing industry in America and possibly even here in Australia is that of self-storage. People are storing more and more possessions in these self-storage places than they know what to do with. Don't be swayed by wealth. Don't be swayed by the wealthy. God is not dependent on wealth. God is not dependent on the wealthy. He doesn't need my wealth. He doesn't need your wealth to establish his kingdom. All wealth will one day be brought under the sovereign power of God to achieve his purposes. This chapter reveals three main sections and we're going to have a look at those now. The first deals with the insecurity of human wealth. The second gives us an expansion of God's sovereignty over wealth. And the third concludes with the final culmination of all wealth. Let's look at these. Tyre and Sidon were trading ports in Phoenicia, which stretched along the Mediterranean coast, today known as Lebanon. Tyre's main influence was through trade. If a country, if a country handles its diplomacy well, it can have a lot of influence, almost better than military power. In the case of Phoenicia, they did this well. Their trade stretched from Egypt and Cyprus right through to Tarshish, it says. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is. Tarshish is. There's a bit of a tongue twister here. But most scholars suggest that it's somewhere in the south of Spain. For her trade, Tyre used huge ships capable of long distances known as the ships of Tarshish. You guys would be familiar with that. They weren't ships from Tarshish, but rather they refer to the type of ship that it was. It was a Phoenician long-range merchant ship, a little bit like today's cargo ships. Now, from verses 1 to 8, we see that the city of Tyre is described as a great city, well-established, with houses and businesses trading through its solid-built harbour. It was the marketplace of the nations, the commercial ventures of Tyre covered the whole Mediterranean world. It had settled far-off colonies in verses 7 and 8, and the people that she dealt with were princes and the well-to-do. But these verses are not recorded for us to admire the glories of Tyre. Rather, they are here to teach us a lesson that comes from Tyre's demise. Have a look at the description of the destruction of Tyre in these same verses. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed. Your fortress is destroyed. 
Suddenly the busy streets and the buzzing port lie silent. A little bit like Melbourne during COVID lockdown. Verse 4 calls for Sidon to be ashamed. It describes Sidon like it never even existed. It was never in labour and it never gave birth. And there will be anguish at the news when the report reaches Egypt. The surrounding nations would have suffered great loss due to their links to the ships through the trade. So those associated with the ships of Tarshish are filled with sadness, grief and despair. Isaiah calls an end to the enterprise of this great global business. It's bankrupt. It's over. Now we've heard about markets regularly driven by fear and greed, but here they're not driven by fear or greed. Fear has turned to grief and there's nothing left. It's finished. Now some of us would have seen this sort of collapse before, if you're around uh, in the early 90s, we had the, uh, the recession that we had to have. And then came the global financial crisis, as I've mentioned, in 2008, where the markets wiped billions of people's funds. And I remember having a conversation with a uh, financial advisor. Uh, we're, at, we're at a picnic and I said to him, uh, surely you, being in the industry, would have known about this and would have done something about people's money and moved it from one place to a more safer place? He said, no, he goes, we couldn't. He goes, it happened too quickly. So I cheekily said to him, I said, well, you must have been sleeping on the job. I said, you've either, you've either down the, you know, the cafe having lattes instead of focusing on what you're supposed to be doing. Anyway, he replied, he said, oh no, it was a worldwide phenomena. Well, many of us would have been caught up in that, and some of us deeply affected, but as people of God, we don't put our trust in human wealth. Our trust is in the Lord and him alone. Verses 8 to 14 move from what's happened to why it's happened. Who could have done this? The answer is in verse 9. The Lord Almighty planned it. The God who is master of the nations, as Raph reminded us a few weeks back, he planned it. And we read in support of that, of, of what Raph mentioned to us a few weeks back, in Psalm 22 in verse 27 and 28, it says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Same with Psalm 47 and 8, it says, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. And there's many, many more references. God planned it. And why did he plan it? Once again, the answer's in verse 9. To bring down low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. Only God is worthy of all glory and we must be humbled before him. 
And then in verse 10, it's saying, go back and till your land because you no longer have a harbour. The kingdoms will tremble at the stretched hand of the Lord. He's given the order. Phoenicia's fortresses are destroyed. Sidon will be crushed and in Cyprus there will be no relief. And then in verse 13, it's like someone asking, well, if you doubt that God can do it, look at the land of the Babylonians. God used the Assyrians to make it a place of desert creatures. King Sennacherib destroyed the city of Babylon in 689 BC. He destroyed their towers, he stripped their fortresses, and he turned everything into ruin. God is saying to his people, and the message is for us today, if you think you are so secure, if you think you're so impregnable, just look at what's happened to your neighbour. Once again, we're reminded by Isaiah that God is sovereign over all nations. God can flatten Tyre at an instant, and the reason is because he planned it. And God will not allow the pride of human wealth or its systems to stand up against him forever. We will see now in the next few verses how Tyre is restored and her wealth comes into God's new Jerusalem. And that all wealth comes to serve God. So wealth is not necessarily a bad thing, but when wealth pumps up pride and where wealth creators may feel, I can stand up on my own, or I don't need God to prop me up, or even worse, I don't need God. That's when God acts to flatten it. I had a, a friend of mine who, um, he lived down at Frankston, and uh, when I tried to share the gospel with him a while back, he said, Sam, he goes, no, nah, no, nah. he goes, look, he goes, I've got my house, I've got my two cars, he, and I've even got my yacht, because I know he had a yacht. He said, I don't need God. That's pretty sad, isn't it? That really saddened me too. Everybody needs God. But the destruction of Tyre is not that Israel might rule, but God is showing us the fickle nature of human wealth and pride and the dangers of putting our dependence on such schemes. In his sovereign power, God acts on the stage of human history to flatten human pride. It's interesting today when we uh, we see the various uh, power struggles within the nations. We see China rising and uh, America seems to be uh, self-destructing. Uh, and then we also see Russia divided after the wall came down suddenly seems to be rising again. I wonder what Isaiah would say to us today. God has been active in every part of human history and he'll continue to be until he returns. Now, the last few verses from Isaiah seem to look at far beyond today to carry that vision of Revelation 21, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, These verses were very difficult to explain. (laughs) 
I shared some time with Raf, and uh, yeah, there's a couple that were uh, a little bit tricky. But let's say this, the 70 years in verse 15 would seem to indicate a number symbolic of judgment and restoration, generally referred to as a lifetime, as in Psalm 90, you know, your, your three score years and ten, uh, or like the 70 years of Jewish captivity, and that's written in Jeremiah chapter 25 under, under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now in verse 16, Tyre is compared to a prostitute, trying to entice men by lewd songs, but can no longer attract attention. God is saying to Tyre, go, make all the singing and noise that you like, but the merchants are no longer interested in you. One commentary identified the word prostitute to indicate the desperation that one is willing to sell themselves for to make the highest profit regardless of the means. Basically selling themselves to deceit and bribery. But then at the end of the 70 years comes the expression of God's mercy. As bad as Tyre is, it will once again prosper and attract the commercial interaction of nations and be the same self-indulgent city as it was in the past. But this time, her profit and her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They won't be stored up and hoarded. They'll be put to good use. The silver and gold will be consecrated for God's kingdom. So what does this mean for us today? Firstly, the individual. We need to remember that Isaiah is not pointing a finger at other nations, but while God is dealing with Tyre in this case, he is warning the people of Judah not to get caught up with their schemes. So it's for the people of God. And so therefore it's for us today. Many of us are tied up in markets and wealth schemes, but having this wealth scheme doesn't mean that we can run our lives independent of God or that God is is dependent on me for my wealth and his glory. We need to be careful that we don't get caught up in the wealth of today. On the contrary, our dependence should always be on God and for, all, and for his provision, we should acknowledge this with gratitude. It's so easy also for those that are not so affluent to be anti-wealth, suggesting that wealth is a bad thing. No, what God is anti is human pride built around wealth. It's easy for the wealthy to think that they are invincible and that they can exist apart from God, disregarding God's commands of holiness and purity. We should look at Tyre to see how awful it will be on the day of judgment if we think we can live our lives apart from Jesus. And then to the church or any Christian organisation, Isaiah would have written this chapter for Judah who had become dependent on Tyre and had given up their God 
in 1st Kings chap, uh, chapter 10, we see that Judah had a fleet of ships themselves within the ships of Tyre. And just like the individual, the church can believe that it can stand because they are mixing it with the wealthy of the world. Thus, moving their dependence from God to the things of the world. A church or Christian organisation may unwittingly depend on a tyre type for their merchandise. We need to be careful of that. We also need to be careful where a church may be enthroned by wealth, where a wealthy person tries to buy the church, just like people buy football clubs. That wealthy person can have the means to meet his own ends, bring about his own vision and not that of God's. In Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18, it says this, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. He gives it and he allows it for it to be used to bring about his purposes. And to conclude, in the words of Jesus himself from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, when we meet up with God in the end, he's not going to ask you how much money you made. He's not going to ask you how big is your bank account. He's not even going to ask you how much money you managed to stash under your mattress. No. Just like the parable of the talents, he's going to ask you, what did you do? with what I gave you. Jesus reminds us that we cannot serve two masters. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me ask you this morning, where is your heart? Let me pray. Father, we want to show our appreciation and gratitude for all your provisions while we're here on this earth. Father, we thank you that you gave us, that you give us the ability to produce wealth, but help us to use it according to your will. Help us not to be selfish and arrogant when it comes to dealing with wealth, but rather generous and willing to help one another, especially in times of need. And we put our trust and security in you alone and in the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. Amen.